This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to Pass the Mic. I am your producer, Bo York, once again, uh, joining the podcast. At this, at this time, I'm standing in for Tyler as opposed to Jamar, because with me, ladies and gentlemen, he's back. Jamar back. Me. Hey, what's going on? We just wanted to test out the dynamics. You and Tyler, <laughs> me and Tyler, you and T, you know, whatever. No, look, when me and Tyler get together, normally we talk about like, you know, fun stuff, movies and, and all kinds of great stuff. Except uh, last week. Man, last week, after last week, after my breakdown last week on the podcast, I wasn't exactly looking forward to uh, coming back on so soon. But look, uh, it was a worthy topic to break down on. Well, I will say this. I, I did think about it after the fact, but I almost feel like there should be a disclaimer that says, you know, Tyler Burns, pastor, you know, Jamar Tisby, seminarian, Bo York, podcaster. Like that, you know, like that, no, no, no training, no theological background, you know. Yeah, but you're a full-time opinionator. <sighs> I try not to be. I, I mean, like there's too much of that on the internet anyway. But, uh, but yeah, man, well, uh, this week we've got uh, some kind of some current events to talk about a little bit in terms of, of you know, where you have been. Where, where have you been? Where have I been? That's a good question. Uh, all over the place, as usual. But also do, doing some traveling. Just got back from Mobile, Alabama. Have you ever spent any time there? Uh, you know, I've been through I've been through Mobile a couple of times. Yeah. yeah so I've, I've driven through maybe once in, in the recent memory, but it is a gorgeous downtown. Now, I'm sure there's other parts that, that folks don't uh, consider as beautiful, but the, the downtown area treated us well, just right on the bay there. And we were there. It was a business trip. Um, I was there for the Presbyterian Church in America's annual General Assembly. Now, this is the one that I kind of describe in my head as kind of like back in the Star Wars prequels where the, they're all floating around in little uh, little oh, yeah. things and everything. <laughs> I think I made that joke last year. But, uh, you know, this is interesting because, of course, General Assembly um, has been has been a topic of discussion on this podcast uh, in, in so much as last year uh, when there was a, a proposition that was proposed. Or, or You might have to break down the politics <laughs> of all this. Yeah, yeah. They're called overtures. Um, and so overtures are specific requests uh, of the General Assembly, which is the the national um, gathering of elders in the Presbyterian Church in America, which is not to be mistaken with the PCUSA, right. which is the more sort of national and northern brand of Presbyterianism. It's also more, um, I don't know what the right term is, theologically liberal. We're certainly more theologically conservative in the PCA. It's a kind of a southern Presbyterian denomination. Anyway, uh, every year they have the General Assembly, and if um, presbyteries, which are local regional gatherings of elders, so a group of churches sends their leaders to presbytery, uh, if they get together and they want to make a specific proposal for a change in the denomination, um, whether that's uh, something concerning worship or um, you know rules of operation, anything like that. They create what's called an overture, which is essentially, um, you know, like a document that says, here are the changes we're wanting to see. And then they send it to General Assembly. Um, depending on the topic, that overture will then go to a committee on o the overtures committee. That committee 
will then decide, all right, is this something, what do we do with this, basically? Um, so they may amend it, they may send it um, as is, but eventually it gets back to the General Assembly floor where everybody votes. Right. And they can vote They can vote an overture up or down, or they can refer it back to committee for more work. So last year, um, one of my former professors at RTS, uh, his name is Sean Lucas, church history professor, brilliant scholar, he did uh, a uh, an overture, which was a little bit different because it didn't come from the Presbytery, it came from an individual, which is a little unusual, but it was about recon- racial reconciliation. For various reasons, they voted to um, not neither pass it nor reject it, but they basically said, let's think about this for we'll a year. We'll punt it. We'll punt it <laughs> till this, this, till 2016. Right. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that I talked about this last year when it That's happened. Right. There's, there's, there's never a bad time to repent. <laughs> so, you know, in, in one sense, that overture could have passed last year and it would have been a great thing. However, there are, there were advantages for it being punted to this year. It, it really meant that some churches and some presbyteries spent the year looking into issues of racism in their own local congregation. So there were some some very courageous churches out there that went back and looked at the the minutes of their elder meetings. Oh wow. And and looked to see, particularly during the civil rights era, were there any explicitly racist things going on? And several churches found that there were there were statements in writing and on record that says we are going to bar um, either African Americans or mixed groups of people from coming into the church. Wow. Yeah. And so so you know the rationale was all right these people are there for a demonstration they're not to, there to worship. So they didn't necessarily make it a racial thing, but we all know. You know. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, they they didn't want um you know, they didn't want the African Americans and 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 white congregants worshiping together. Uh, at the very least, I think the most charitable reading would be uh, they didn't want to disrupt service with a quote unquote political demonstration. But I think in hindsight, we all see that as a missed opportunity for um, a very vocal and public stance for racial equality. So they went back and they confessed those things. They also came up with more overtures. So last year there was just that one, and it, it came from an individual. This year um, there were there were more than sixty total overtures. Over forty were having to do with racial reconciliation. Oh, wow. So you're looking at two-thirds of um, the specific requests from local presbyteries are on this topic of racial So it was a marvelous, really, movement of the Spirit throughout the, pre- throughout the PCA where all of these churches and all these presbyteries are getting together and saying, hey, we need to do something. And it passed. That That's was the big news this year by by an extremely large margin, although although not uh, not unanimous. Not unanimous, not unanimous. So the official count was um, eight sixty one in favor, one hundred twenty three against, and twenty three abstain. An overwhelming number still, but yeah. like you say, um, not unanimous. However, it was a historic moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so I wrote a post on this called um, Ref- "Reflections from a Black Presbyterian on the PCA's." overture on racial reconciliation. I I wanted to approach it coming from the perspective of an ethnic minority in a denomination that's about 80% white. Um, And it was significant. A couple of the points I made in that were, you know, number one, this statement is distinctive. It's important that this statement is talking specifically about the civil rights era. 
Uh, there have been other statements by the PCA that have dealt with racism generally or have dealt with slavery and the Civil War, but nothing on paper uh, at a denominational level dealing with civil rights, which is significant because a lot of folks, um, you know, they had they had uh, daddy and, and, and granddaddy and uncle and uh, friends who were alive during the civil rights era, who were elders in the church, all those kinds of things, they're directly implicated in really maintaining the segregationist status quo. Yeah. Uh, so, so for a Southern Presbyterian denomination to, to admit, hey, we missed it during the civil rights era, that's huge. And that's hard. And that, that's, that's one thing I think outsiders maybe don't understand. Um, certainly me as a born and raised Midwesterner, it took me some years <laughs> to come down and, and absorb some of the culture of the South to realize how important that legacy is. And you just don't, you know, you don't, you don't say anything that would impugn the honor of a relative, um, and especially an elder. So, um, you know, it's, it's not a little thing that it passed and yeah. passed by that much. Well, you know, it's interesting kind of on the, the topic of dealing with kind of legacy racism. Um, you know, I, I, if, if you'd allow me kind of a, a selfish plug real quick, we actually, uh, on another podcast I do called let's talk Jackson, which is kind of tailored to Mississippi. Uh, in our season one, we actually had a guest called Lawrence Stennis on who talks specifically yeah. about her family's legacy, even like not just, you know, these quiet side stories, but in fact, the political legacy of her family and having to, to come to terms with, I loved my grandfather, but my grandfather stood for something that I personally am no longer standing for. In fact, I'm right. standing in opposition of it. Uh, so anyway, Lawrence Dennis, let's talk Jackson. Check yeah. out that episode if you want to hear a little bit in depth from from somebody who's uh, dealt specifically with kind of that, that legacy of racism yes. in a, an interesting way and a lot about what's going on with the Mississippi flag as with well. With the flag, yeah. <laughs> That's a great episode. And she, I love her flag proposal, by the way. That, yeah. um, and, and, and that gets to the, that gets to the, I think the biggest sort of, uh, um, objection or sticking point to the racial reconciliation overture. A lot of people ask, well, who are those 123 <laughs> and what are they doing? Right. You know, and are they just, you know, well, the assumption is they're, they're just flat out racist. Um, I think as Christian brothers and sisters, that's not a charitable reading. Um, I think it certainly raises legitimate questions about why you would vote against this. But um, as I indicated in the post, it could be anything. I mean, it could be there were some who, who wanted even stronger language, um, who wanted you know to be more precise, more specific, more robust with the overture. And so they may have voted no because they wanted something that was even more potent. Uh, there are others. It could have been mechanical error. I mean, it could have been easily, you know, I, I pressed two and I meant to press Chad one. Chad didn't go through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hanging Chad's. It could be. Um, uh, I doubt that was very much of it, but let's not, you know, attribute all these motives when we really don't know. However, I can say that based on debate in the committee and on um, the General Assembly floor when they were about to vote, uh, and really even leading up to General Assembly, a lot of the objection was, number one, the denomination wasn't officially formed until 1973, which is well after sort of the heyday of the formal civil rights movement. Most people date it like 55 to 68. Uh, so how can we as a denomination repent for an era in which we weren't even a denomination yet? That's one. The second one's related, which is can a denomination repent? Because are we responsible for the moral choices 
of individuals who aren't us, right? right. Like, and that's a, there's a theological basis for this. We as Christians believe that we're all going to be judged um, by Jesus Christ when 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 He returns, and we can be judged on our actions and our actions alone. And those who are in Christ, although we are guilty of sinning against Him because we've believed in Him and we're um, forgiven uh, through the means of His sacrifice, then. Uh, we're, his, his righteousness is going to be attributed to us. But for all those who aren't in Christ, they're going to be judged on the basis of their own actions. And so there's this very clear Christian theological principle that um, what you sow is what you reap, unless you're covered by the blood of Jesus. When you attribute that, though, to racism, it gets a little tricky. Because racism doesn't operate just on an individual level, I believe. Racism can operate on a, a widespread and a corporate level. Mm. And, and it doesn't just operate overtly. It doesn't just operate through the actions or the words that you say or do. It can ap- operate covertly and implicitly. Um, it, it, sins of omission and commission. So you can actually do things and commit sin, but also not doing something in the face of injustice is also a sin for which uh, we need to repent. That's good. So there's two directions I kind of want to go. One is actually a question that was brought up actually in our in our Pass the Mic Facebook group, uh, kind of related to this specifically, and, and also just recent uh, uh, similar, similar movements in, in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, you know, that you might be able to speak a little bit more to. Um, but but ultimately, there's there's criticism about what's going on and comparing it to theological liberalism, which you, you kind of actually touched on actually a, a couple minutes ago. Um, and you know, would you? How would you kind of differentiate what's going on in terms of you know the PCA, the the Southern Baptist Convention, with these denominations looking more towards racial justice, civil rights, social justice, and 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 how is that different from denominations in the past who have gone what some would consider to be more theologically liberal. Right. That's, that's a great question. That's a big fear. I'll just wrap up the previous point. I I mean, I do believe corporate repentance is uh, possible and necessary. Uh, I think, you know, the PCA was formed as the continuing Presbyterian church. And so it begs the question, what are we continuing? Uh, What the founders meant by continuing is uh, biblical fidelity, uh, commitment to evangelism and the spread of the gospel, um, uh, commitment to Presbyterian polity. Of course, all of that's true, but you can't just pick and choose, you know, parts of Presbyterianism that if you call yourself a continuing church, you've also got to say that there were some other things, mm-hmm. specifically racism, segregation, both overt and co- covert, both acts of commission and omission, that come along with it. Um, and and even if the denomination wasn't formed, the the, the actual churches as organizations, uh, the actual people, they were around during the civil rights movement. And insofar as they uh, continued on into the PCA, they brought that with them, that mentality, you know, those associations, whether with, you know, specific groups or just um, relational and friendship associations, all of that comes with you. And so we can't celebrate the, you know, the theological or even uh, some of the social achievements of Southern Presbyterians without also acknowledging their shortcomings, their blind spots, and their outright sins. And I think that is what needs to be repented of and saying that we're part of this in a covenant sort of continuity uh, that 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 even if we didn't personally commit them 
we're part of a body uh, that was complicit in continuing some things that we know we shouldn't stand for based on biblical principles. You're over there smiling and grinning. Oh, I just, <laughs> because I know where, I know the second area that I want to take it in and it applies to, okay, so the, the, the PCA has, has kind of recognized their uh, silence and activity, perhaps even uh, indulging in kind of the, the racism of the day of the civil rights movement. Today in 2016, many would say we're experiencing either a second civil rights movement, if not a continuation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the PCA's role now that there's an acknowledgement of an inactivity then? Where now do we go as a PCA who's made this decision, and rightfully so, in terms of being proactive? Mm-hmm. So um, I think you are seeing a growing number of people who want to uh, be more vocal in a public sphere about racial reconciliation and racial justice. I think what you're also seeing is a denomination and a group of Christians who's not well versed in it and so doesn't quite know what to do. Mm. So what I get a lot is, hey, we're all for this. We see this in the Bible that um, in in the image of God, we're all created equally, that um, some of the things that the church stood for in the past were reprehensible and we repudiate that. We want to do something about it. What do we do? And that's an iterative process. We're going to figure this out because we can't do the same things we did 50 years ago to combat racial injustice because the the landscape has changed. Mm, mm. Um, It's a lot more um, covert now. Uh, You don't have uh, laws on the books that are sanctioning, you know, segregation on a racial basis, but you do have laws and policies and practices that are perpetuating inequality. And by that, I mean, I don't mean equal outcomes. And I think this gets to your your previous question about like that slippery slope and, and all those kinds of things. A lot of people think that racial equality means equal outcomes, which means everybody ends up with the same amount of wealth, you know, same amount of property value, same amount of education. That's not what we're talking. We're, we're talking about um, equality of opportunity. So we're not starting. We're not talking about the finish line. We're starting about the, talking about the starting line. Um, and right now, the starting line is staggered based on race and wealth, really. And the two are pretty much inseparable in the United States. And it is stacked against people of color, particularly African Americans. And so what we're talking about when I talk about racial equality um, is moving those starting lines a little bit closer so that we have equal opportunity. And then what an individual does with that opportunity is really dependent on his or her own actions. But right now, we're in a situation where no matter what an individual does in some circumstances, it's not going to net them the same benefits as somebody who's of a different skin color. Um, So that's what we're talking about. But as soon as you mention that, you know, theologically conservative Christians are are running for the hills because they're thinking, well, this is the first step toward uh, uh, abandoning the Bible Uh, toward getting so involved in social issues that we lose the gospel. Uh, We're not going to evangelize anymore. We're going to be, you know, doing, uh, you know, voter registration rallies and lobbying political officials, and we're going to be doing that from the pulpit. I don't think that needs to happen. I think it can. I don't think it's a necessary result. Can you argue that it has happened, though? Just it looks differently in more comfortable ways for what the established church has been maybe maybe that's wrong to put that on the pca but certainly i mean you know if, if you kind of that's a great point outside looking in one would argue that the church 
has always done that. Mm-hmm. It's just done that in favorable ways to whatever kind of the ruling class of the church is. Yeah, that's a that's a critical point that you bring up. Um, and I'm not arguing that we should go the other, you know, right, <laughs> the, the right, pendulum right. should swing the other way. I'm just saying that fair criticism, but at the same time, maybe self-reflection should be involved with that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a question of um, either being socially active or not. It's a question in reality of how are we socially active? Um, and the reality is uh, the church has been, especially in the United States, socially and politically active. Um, and this is another uh, uh, great point that that Sean Lucas brings up in in his discussions of of the history of Southern Presbyterianism when it came to you know like teaching evolution in school when it came to prohibition when it came to um, abortion and Roe v Wade the the, the church was not only vocal um, as a prophetic voice but it was also involved in actual policy and and advocating for policy change. Um, and I think there are better and worse ways to do that, but but let's not set it up like the church hasn't been active, it's only been spiritual, and now you're talking about bringing in a social and political issue. No, the church has always been involved in social and political issues, but it's been selectively involved, and typically it has not been involved with issues of racial justice. Uh, so that's a great point. Um, you know, let's be fair. Let's be fair here. Right. Um, so yeah, we're getting a lot of that, but I don't see this is where I this is where I embrace reformed theology because I think it gives us clear boundaries about what we consider biblical and not, which then empowers us to wade into very tricky questions and issues without fear of losing the gospel right. or losing biblical fidelity. I think it's when you don't have clear boundaries and you don't have a clear theology that you are vulnerable and exposed to all kinds of, of misunderstandings and false teachings. So it, it really strikes me as, as, as very counterintuitive that we have this robust theology and we're basically like wrapping our armed arms around it and saying, mine, everybody get away. You <laughs> right, know? right, right. I don't want to engage with anything that's different because we got it all right here. Don't mess with it. I think it actually is the opposite. We have this clear, um, rich teaching so that we are empowered to go into the world and offer creative and biblical solutions without fear of this slippery slope into, you know, saying the Bible isn't the word of God or something like that. Um, well, before we kind of uh, pivot to to another subject, I, 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 I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up, especially since I mentioned I, mentioned I was going to bring it up on the Facebook group. Uh, the PCA also adopted a new logo <laughs> that looks suspiciously like the helmet of Boba Fett from Star Wars. <laughs> so uh, were, were you part of uh, Did nobody point that out at the time? I don't know. I wasn't in that meeting. Uh-huh. I wasn't part of that. <laughs> Look, we, it's the first time we've changed the logo or even had an official logo, maybe, and I don't know how long. So at least we're thinking about branding and marketing. Uh-huh. Uh, we're just not doing it very well. Well, I will say this. I mean, the Washington Post picked that up. I mean, like, you know, there's yeah, more highlights the times, yeah. on the fact that we look like Boba Fett than there was actually <laughs> the racial the, reconciliation. Yeah, well, of course, we're going to keep our priorities here. Right, uh, right. So I can't wait for the T-shirt, though. If they get the T-shirt out, I'm oh rocking my it. Gosh. How can oh now that needs to happen? How can we how can we take Boba Fett quotes of which there's only like five and turn them into like theologically or, or like reformed theology? I'm gonna leave that to 
you and Tyler, but that oh, sounds man. fantastic. That I'll needs wear to it. Happen. I'll wear it. All right. So so let me ask you this, because this is a, as a bit of a pivot, but but also not much. I mean, the the talk of of the moment is BET and uh, the BET yeah. uh, awards that occurred uh, last week, and specifically, uh, is it Jesse Williams' speech yes. who uh, got up on stage and just really just very. Uh, boldly and, and uh, eloquently, he was so articulate. <laughs> say that, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was powerful, man. It was just it was a, a really powerful acceptance speech. And in talking about specifically, kind of some of the things that we've talked about a little bit in terms of uh, a call to action and and um, what's going on. And it's been interesting to see some of the response. And it's it's kind of like this initial very well received, and then some people completely missed what he was saying, and some people <laughs> completely ran in the wrong direction. That, and yes. you know, there's always it seems like we have these wonderful moments of clarity uh, that often you know people uh, uh, of celebrity status, uh, be it in in secular or or in biblical terms. I mean, we'll, we'll have this great big moment of clarity, and then everybody kind of takes it and runs with with various directions with it. Care to comment? Were you so, watching? I, I didn't watch it live, but I did <laughs> watch Twitter. It was all right. So this whole thing, this is—I I think this is part of a big stream. You're about to criticize him. See, this isn't—I only have one criticism. Uh-huh. Of it. Um, which I already posted on social media. I so. saw that. I was like, <laughs> "What must we always point out? Like the one thing that's not exactly theologically accurate?" Like, yes, we, yes, yeah. yes, we do. Because <laughs> the PCA is because still we always PCA. have to have an asterisk. No, the, it, it, it's it's a it's a it's an indictment on us. And I'll I'll point uh, listeners to Micah Edmondson's Edmondson's piece on. Is uh, Black Lives Matter the new civil rights movement? Mm, mm, um, he mm. gives. Don't just. All right. Here's just a. You know, for folks who don't know, if there's a question in the title of a blog post, it's rhetorical. You don't have to like answer <laughs> it on social media. No, it's so obnoxious. Are you saying that clickbait is something that exists <laughs> and people use? <laughs> then they use. Yes. So so anyway, he gives a wonderful exposition of it. But one of the points he makes is it's an indictment on the church that 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 we. We only have something like Black Lives Matter um, as a very public national movement sort of towards civil rights. He's saying that uh, the church has been so silent and so passive about racial justice in the face of gross injustice that it takes unbelievers to rise up and um, talk about this. And, and that's an indictment on us as a body. Not that there hasn't been any motion, but you don't have really a Christian equivalent on that scale. You have lots of uh, local action going on, and you certainly have lots of individuals speaking up about it. But as far as like a, anything's close to a national movement, we don't have. And so that's, that's why, um, you know, I'm frustrated if I have to point something out because if you have an unbeliever or somebody who, with whom we we would have profound theological disagreements, uh, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be an asterisk there, and I'm sick of putting the asterisk there. I want more believers. <laughs> and yet, and yet, but <laughs> if, you have in to. the I absence understand. of you know, in the absence of a right. legit alternative, I can say I affirm. 95% of what he said. Right. Uh, the one thing I said, he said, the hereafter is a hustle. And it's just, just so annoying because <laughs> everybody loves the civil rights movement, but they don't want to acknowledge that it was a church movement. Uh-huh. And the leaders were by and large clergy. They were women who were leaders in the church. Mm. They were people whose hope of heaven empowered them to fight for justice in the here and now. And so I don't know how you call hereafter a hustle unless you also want to repudiate people like Fannie Lou Hamer. 
mm-hmm. uh, Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. uh, Ralph Abernathy. Those are just the big names, despite you know not to say nothing of the local people. So I just think it's it's a it's it's uh, intentionally ignorant and blind of of history to to sort of impugn um, Christianity and Christian motives in terms of social justice. Fair so points. That's Fair all points. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, that speech, this is part of a movement that I think is more recent, say the 2010s and teens, about wokeness and about being unapologetically black. Mm. And by that, I mean, so like, like, like my parents' generation, to get ahead, you had to downplay your blackness. Right. You had to you had to become this is the O.J. Simpson series. Right. O.J. Simpson deliberately said, I'm not getting into all this racial stuff. He's sort of like the polar opposite of Muhammad Ali um, in the way he used his sports platform. He's he's saying, don't think of don't think of me as a as a as a black athlete or anything. I'm just O.J. And that was the mentality of a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people that if you wanted to get your slice of the American dream. You had to be as um, unnoticeably black as possible, hmm. and you had to be that one they had to say, "I don't even see you as black." You know, you right. had to fit in. You had to assimilate so much to the dominant culture that they would cease to think about you in racial terms, at least not overtly. But this, you know, I mean, this latest generation in the era of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Charleston Nine and and all of these happenings. There's 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 a resurgence. It's always been there, but I think there's a public resurgence of being unapologetically unapolog- black, which means I am going to speak out of my experience and I'm going to embrace my humanity as embodied in this, you know, darker skin or being of African descent in a way that is not going to downplay it. It's not going to um, sort of, you know, bow to the dominant culture that says white is right in so many different ways. I'm going to be black. And that's what Jesse Williams was was talking about in his speech. Mm. Uh, And his wasn't just the only one, right? Everything from the Beyonce and the Kendrick Lamar performance at the beginning uh, to to Beyonce's whole lemonade and formation, all of that is part of this stream. But what Jesse Williams tapped into is, I think, a very sophisticated analysis of racial issues that I'll just say evangelicals are missing or they're only just starting to catch on to. Mm, mm. So one of the lines he said that I thought was really, really impactful was, was this. He said, and let's get a couple of things straight. Just a little side note. The burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. That's not all. That's not our job. All right. Stop with all that. Um, that unpack that a little bit. Wow. That's, that's huge. Like I said, it's sophisticated for folks who are just wading into this. Mm. So the burden of the brutalized by that, he means, it could really apply to any marginalized group, but specifically in terms of African-Americans who have been historically brutalized. And if you need evidence of that, I mean, watch, um, you know, the African-Americans, many rivers to cross, crossed by Henry Louis Gates, um, you know, read lots of different books, uh, like I've Got the Light of Freedom, which focuses on um, the struggle for civil rights in Mississippi, Charles Payne, any number of, of resources to prove that. And, and, and then he says, the burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. In other words, how I take that is, so often African Americans are sort of having to explain and unpack things for white people, not only just in, 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 a, in a way to help them understand, but in a palatable manner. Like, like it, it, we, we, 
there's this burden on African Americans as a brutalized group of people to make those who are part of that group that was part of the brutalizing, whether you did it directly or not, you know, just being part of that that demographic, to make it, to basically soft pedal it and make it, you know, easily digestible. When it's not, it's not easily digestible because it's brutalization. It's not supposed to be easy to digest. It's not supposed mm-hmm. to be easy to talk to a white person about white privilege, for example, right? It's supposed to be awkward and uncomfortable because the reality of it is awkward and uncomfortable and ugly. Um, It's not easy to talk about systemic oppression because the reality of it is hard and it's difficult. And so it's not the responsibility of those who have been victimized by these different factors or individuals to then go to that demographic and and make it easy on you. You Mm -hmm. know, I just... And I don't mean that to sound harsh. I don't mean that in in a way that, you know, well, this is just how it is and forget your feelings. I think there is a responsibility to be charitable to one another. I think there is a responsibility to um, try at least to make an attempt to make, um, you know, not to lose the truth of what you're saying in, um, you know, just being obnoxious. But there's also the reciprocal reality that, you know, for African Americans to speak up honestly about their experience is in and of itself a courageous act. Hmm. And white people uh, or people in the majority need to be okay with being uncomfortable about it, even as it implicates them, because I think that's the most uncomfortable part is that it implicates you, uh, even if personally or individually you feel you're not a racist or haven't done racist acts. It's hard to hear that you're part of a group that is benefiting from the way things are set up and these people you know you're sitting across from at work or or school or in churches they are experiencing a different reality within the same system so i thought that was a powerful line man it was a powerful speech it was a powerful speech overall uh man i wish we had more time to kind of dive into it more deeply maybe we'll be able to next week any just kind of final thoughts though just uh overall I mean, I, 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 think, I think everything that's happening, whether it's the PCA, Southern Baptist talking about the Confederate flag, Jesse Williams' speech, I don't know if this is a movement, but it's certainly a moment. Um, we're, we're definitely in a moment. I feel like we've been in a moment for a couple of years. At, at what, what point do you see that becoming a movement? Do you mean, or do you yeah. mean, do you mean as a as a Christian body, or do you mean as a country? Because I would I would argue that as a country we are experiencing a movement. Yeah. Now whether or not that's happening within the church, and, right. and this is more of a moment for the church rather than a movement within the church, maybe something. But yeah, your your perspective may differ. Yeah, that's a great great point. Uh, when when does a moment become a movement? And I I don't know. It's probably a moving target. Um, <laughs> when when the history books write it down. Exactly. Right? <laughs> when the history books say it so. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if folks during the civil rights movement were they having these same discussions. Is is this a mm. moment or is this a movement or is it only in hindsight that we can call it either one? Um, what I can say is that 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 there is definite um, momentum, and that race uh, as an issue is on the radar nationally, like it hasn't been um, in a long time. And I think, in particular, for the church, th- that's a very salient question: Is this a moment? I think it's if it is a movement, it's much that that case is much easier to make in the broader society. Mm. I think in in um, 
you know, reformed in um, Christian circles that we do have to talk about whether this is a moment or a movement, and that will depend on the action that we take, uh, which is which is my whole point. Like, regardless of what we label this time, it is a, a time that's ripe for action. So whatever, like, ideas you got percolating in the back of your head about racial equality or justice, now's the time to put those out there. Now's the time to go to your, you know, your elders at church. Now's the time to preach the sermon. Now's the time to form the, you know, the book club or the study group. Uh, now, now is the time to contact legislators. Now is the time to inform yourself on uh, issues of mass incarceration, both on a federal and a state level, or issues of public education or what have you. Now is the time for that. Mm. And if not now, then when? That's good. All right. Well, uh, yeah. So in the meantime, you can, of course, uh, follow us on Twitter. Check out rannetwork.org for wonderful blog posts. You can also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, you should not just on iTunes. Ladies and gentlemen, you can subscribe to the podcast on Satchel, <laughs> the Satchel podcast player now available on iPhone and Android. So download it. Uh, wonderful things you can do through Satchel. You can actually tweet directly into the podcast and donate a few dollars. And to donate a few dollars. Yeah. Actually, I've seen a couple of you guys already do that. So awesome. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's going to do it for us this week, but we will be back next week on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.